Personally, I'm really glad and relieved that Jesus invites us to a deeper insight into adultery and lust and how we should respond to them. Our own culture often trivializes these issues, but we know this is really important. And you may have already spotted that the majority of what Jesus says here in this passage is underlining how catastrophically damaging lust and adultery can be. Uh, but also in the light of that, what radical action may be required of us. So we're going to think both about how Jesus redefines adultery, but we're also going to think about uh, the fact that he, he spoke so sternly and so directly about uh, the radical action that we might need to take. Now we need to read and hear this passage in the light of uh, the teaching of the whole Bible. And in that, we consistently hear that marriage is a good gift from God, that the companionship that marriage affords, that the compassion uh, that it entails, uh, that the, in a sense, the, the warmth of relationship that it allows, and uh, mutually enriching and joyful sexual intimacy, all of those things are a good gift from God. So everything else that we need uh, to think and hear this morning, we need to hear in the light of that. Secondly, we need to remember that marriage is portrayed throughout the Bible as something important. It is weighty. It's exclusive. And it's lifelong. As our marriage service uh, puts it, marriage is not something to be undertaken carelessly, lightly, or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly and after serious thought. And next week, we've got another challenge because we're going to be looking at the next section of Matthew 5 where Jesus teaches about divorce. Uh, but today, we're thinking about uh, adultery. Now, if you look at verse 27, this passage starts in a very similar way to last week. Uh, Jesus says, you've heard it said, dot, dot, dot. And then this time he quotes the seventh commandment, which is, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus has absolutely no problem or issue with this commandment, far from it. But just as with murder, what Jesus did with murder, as we looked at last week, is he widens the bite point of the commandments. So it's not just simply you shan't murder somebody, but it widens that and helps us to think about, well, what part does anger and ridicule and hatred at play in our lives and recognizes how corrosive that is and how we need to take positive, radical action to take those things out of our lives. And here, Jesus is doing the same with adultery. It's not just the physical act of being sexually intimate with someone who's not a husband and wife that is adultery. It's something that we can do in our own head and in our own heart. You know this. We can undress someone in our own mind and fantasize how it would feel to be intimate with them. We can dream about how another person will appreciate us or love us or fulfill us sexually in the way that we feel our spouse does not. 
we can deny that uh, other people made in God's image are wonderful by reducing them to being objects of our own lusts and desire, enslaving them to our own selfish and short-sighted sexual needs. So Jesus is teaching in this passage that there is more to adultery than actually having sex with someone we're not married to. There are 101 ways that we can be emotionally and psychologically unfaithful, or to put it another way, 101 ways in which we can think ourselves into the arms of another. But the most surprising thing about this short passage is that Jesus devotes most of his time to underlining the radical action that we should take if we find that our hearts and our minds are feeding on lust, or if we realize that we are dwelling on the ways that someone else might fulfill or excite or love us. I mean, think about the language he uses, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. It's better to be maimed than it is to be in hell. And this is, of course, where so many 21st century people simply part company with Jesus. They don't, they don't like this advice. It's too stern. It's too prudish. It's too Victorian. It's too down on sex. Where's the fun? Where's the sparkle? We're going to spend the rest of our time trying to answer uh, that question. Firstly, Bible commentators agree that Jesus is using forceful and vivid pictures here. That was how uh, things were often taught in his culture and his language. He's using dramatic metaphors. He's not saying, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. There is evidence that, that just occasionally in Christian history, that's what Christian men have done. So there are rare occasions where uh, men have castrated themselves thinking that they're living out at the truth of these verses, kind of a, a very desperate thing uh, to do. These are vivid, powerful pictures to make the point that sexual purity and faithfulness are beautiful things. So this is part of the Bible's resounding yes to the incomparable, joyful, heart and soul strengthening wonder of sexual intimacy. And this is part of the Bible's firm no to cheap love, debasing others, hypocrisy, and being selfish with our sexual appetites. These are really strong ways to say adultery of any kind, whether it's actual or imagined, corrodes and spoils marriages. And so the battle to learn self-control is worth it. But Jesus says it in a way that tells us that some of the action that we might need to take will feel serious and will feel radical, it might even feel drastic. You know, it might mean stopping a relationship. It might mean completely readdressing our relationship with our phone or with our computer. It might be a time of deep repentance because of the way that we've learnt to see and debase other people, but it will feel radical and drastic. 
And Jesus is good enough to warn us that that is the case. So secondly, part of the reason that Jesus uses such strong and vivid language is that the wonderful gift of sexual intimacy is, of course, such a fiercely powerful experience. Even guilty, adulterous sex can feel amazing in the moment. And so such a powerful appetite and capacity with which we are gifted needs to be protected and nurtured and controlled. Because sex is such a powerful experience, we need to take strong measures to relish it in the right place and to run from it when it's out of order. These vivid imaginations that we have are a gift from our Creator God, which means that learning self-control includes control over how we see other people and what we look at. Thirdly, though, we should not confuse the experience of feeling tempted sexually with the experience of uh, being attracted to someone and seeing them adulterously. So Martin Luther, writing in the 16th century, had a very 16th century image to help us understand this. I hope you're able to translate it to the 21st century. He said this, he said, we can't stop birds flying around our heads, but we can stop them nesting in our hair. Now, I don't think that's been a problem to many of us here, but you, you, I think you totally get the image that he's using. That, of course, you, know, you can't stop things entering your head but we do have control over what we do with them and those fleeting temptations can either be something that we swat away or they can be something that we dwell on that we feed that we give room to uh, that we come back to we're not serving Jesus if we spiral into self-hatred every time that we have a sexual thought or a sexual impulse. Our culture might taunt us with the accusation that Jesus is just encouraging self-loathing here, uh, which our culture understands as a bad thing. We must prove that it's not. And we must also help others to see that real self-loathing lies elsewhere. In my pastoral experience, real self-loathing is the experience of those whose hearts and minds have been saturated uh, with pornography or uh, with, in a sense, a very free and hedonistic attitudes uh, towards sex. Or it's the experience of those who've had a relationship with someone uh, who has, in a sense, dwelled in those dark places. That's where the self-loathing is in our culture today. Now, I'm very aware that my task this morning is not to scare uh, parents and grandparents. Uh, because when it comes to this subject, you are scared already. You know what a quagmire uh, we live in today. Pornhub is the 10th most visited website in the world. I hope you've not been on it. But if you have, you will know that Pornhub monetizes, amongst other things, child rape, revenge pornography, spy cam video, and much, much worse. That is the culture in which we live. 
which is almost unimaginable uh, to those of us who, who grew up with something very different. We don't need to scare each other. What we need to do is to have discussion and encouragement and straight talking. And you kind of hope that the church can be that kind of place and that kind of community. We need to talk about how to teach our children self-control in this environment. How we teach resilience. How we teach the ability to say no. How we model at the mental strength and the courage to take a different path. There was a moment when our kids were much, much younger, when the answer seemed to be, just for a moment, massively restrict young people's access to the internet. That moment has gone. I think it's gone forever. Now, it's about teaching self-control and about what it means to respect other people. We need to talk candidly to our sons and our daughters to correct the terrifying half-truths about sexual intimacy that dominate the landscape. And we need to find appropriate ways to share our own mistakes, to share our own joys and challenges. And there are two reasons why we need to do so. Firstly, this generation now uh, that is uh, now sometimes been called the Everyone's Invited uh, generation, named after the, the website that has uh, so far got about 50,000 contributions uh, from school children across our country about the culture of sexual abuse in schools. The Everyone's Invited generation have decided that my generation and the generation above have simply left them to it and abandoned them. And they feel like they're caught in this terrible, dystopian world. They also think that my generation, certainly, and maybe older, we are the generation of Jimmy Savile and Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein. And so they think that our generation completely blew sex. We got it completely and utterly wrong. We hide, we repress. We let people get away with stuff. We hush stuff up for the greater good. So they look at us and they think either we've left them to it, or they think we have literally nothing of substance or importance uh, to say, nothing to commend, no good news to share. And that's the situation that we're in. And my contention with you this morning is that, of course, we lead in humility and contrition, both knowing that we've got it wrong ourselves and know that we're part of a culture that has got, that has got it wrong too. But there is great beauty and power in what Jesus is saying, that within uh, the wonder and the ideal of marriage, there is a gift that burns hot and burns powerfully, has this amazing ability uh, to draw people together uh, for mutual joy and enrichment, as well as uh, the beautiful gift, potentially, of children. But we also learn from Jesus uh, that there is great, 
great damage in the abuse, the misuse, the mishandling, the misunderstanding of this gift. Our culture trivializes it, plays it down, says it's nonsense, says there's nothing to worry about. And our challenge is to hold on to two beautiful things. It is to hold on to, first, what Jesus so clearly says here, that if, if this is a pinch point for me or for you, it requires drastic, radical action. Superficial things will not do because this cuts so deeply. So we may be called to do things, forsake things, give things up, but in the moment that will feel drastic and terrible, a loss. But of course it's a gain. The second thing we hold on to is mercy and grace. And of course, it would be completely fine and true for the church to be accused of putting sexual sin and failing and brokenness in a completely different compartment and saying there is no way back from those things. But of course, the beauty of Jesus' relationships was so often it was mending the people who got this wrong and putting them back together. I know that there are quite a few of you here who would be able to say, because of the grace of God, things that I got wrong, relationships that went completely south, habits and attitudes that I allowed myself to form, they are being changed and challenged and renewed by the gift of the Spirit working in my heart. But friends, that is always going to feel radical. And there were times in which we recoil from it as we would recoil if someone gave us a spoon and said, gouge out your eye. Or as we would recoil if someone gave us a saw and said, cut off your arm. The good news is that there is mercy and grace. The good news is that God knew what he was doing when he gave us marriage and when he gave us the joy of sexual intimacy. Not for all. One of the messages that we need to commend is that you can have a great, fulfilling life without being sexually active, just as, of course, as Jesus was. But let's hold on to the call to radical action and the gift of grace and see in our broken society that history is going to look back on this culture at this time and think, what on earth were we doing? Let's remain strong and true and hold out a better way. Amen.